Hello, friends and fellow walkers. Man, I just get to talk to the most amazing people on this podcast. Today on the show, we have theology professor, church anti-racism leader, and social change practitioner, Professor Drew Hart. If we're not reading the Bible through Jesus, and we're taking everything as equal and giving everything uh, the same weight and taking it at its face value, the Bible's an incoherent text. How can you say, listen to the cries of the poor without looking at what makes them poor? You don't have to believe certain things to be part. The irony is that you can be pro-guns, pro-death penalty, pro-military, anti-environment, and still say you're pro-life. But people get really uncomfortable. It's like they want to have their religion and they want to have their porn. They want to do both. I don't think any form of Christianity deserves to survive and thrive if it doesn't come to terms with the racism of our past. When we really tell the story of Jesus, we find a God who comes to the point where it has all collapsed. If a good teacher is to get a student to get the right answers on the test, and if Jesus was supposed to get us to get the right answer for when we die, then can we just be honest and say, not a good teacher? Hey guys, how's your New Year's resolution? How's that looking? Especially the one about your health and wellness. Well, if you need some help, make sure that you reach out to Angie Niska at Rise Nutrition. You can find them on Facebook at Rise Menominee and make sure that you tell them that you found them on Jesus Never Ran by going to the link in the show notes and you will get a free wellness profile. Again, that's Rise Nutrition with Angie Niska. You can find them at Rise Menominee on Facebook. I heard this gentleman on another podcast and knew I wanted to have him on Jesus Never Ran. He recently wrote a book, Who Will Be a Witness? We'll talk all about it. Today on the show, Professor Drew Hart. I'm Drew Hart. I'm Assistant Professor of Theology at Maasai University and also the Director of a new program called Thriving Together, Congregations for Racial Justice. I am uh, married, been married to Renee for over a decade now. We've got three little boys. They, they keep our house lively. I am originally from Philly area. My dad, all his family's from Philly. And uh, my mom is originally from Jamaica, but moved here when she was 19. I've got three siblings. I'm kind of a Pennsylvania boy, right? I've bounced back and forth between Philly and Harrisburg a few times. I... I'm deeply involved in justice work here in my city. I'm a co-leader for a group called Free Together that do just network with other faith leaders and collaborate with just the good work around organizing, community organizing, and movement work that's happening here in our city. Oh, and I'm also a podcaster myself. I co-host Inverse Podcast with Jared McKenna, who's actually from Australia. So it's kind of a global conversation that we're having, mostly around uh, liberative readings of scripture and then how that takes off into other areas of our lives. Awesome, Drew. Thank you again so much for being on the show. It's just an honor to have you. And of course, Jesus Never Ran, we tackle difficult issues of faith. That's what we do here. So do you mind sharing a little bit with us what your background is in regard to your faith, what you grew up in, and then maybe where you are now? I'm a little quirky, I think, as it relates to my traditions. But I was raised in a non-denominational black church. Basically, it was black Baptist without affiliating that way. When I came to uh, undergrad and studied biblical studies there, 
I got introduced to the idea of Anabaptism for the very first time, and that was intriguing. Um, I had all kinds of questions, but it was intriguing. Drew, for those people who have never heard of Anabaptists before, who have never heard that term, do you mind sharing a little bit about what it means to be an Anabaptist? Yeah, yeah. There's the 16th century Anabaptism, which is basically everybody, right? Taking out on these poor folks who, uh, but basically like they were being persecuted from the Catholic church, the reformed church, the Lutheran church, like everybody persecuted them. But basically it was that during the reformation under Luther and Calvin and such, um, they felt like the logical conclusions weren't being taken all the way to their fullest extent. And so they were the first ones to break church and state relationships. They believed in voluntary faith. And so they didn't believe that people should be baptized as an infant because it took away that choice. And probably most notably, um, at least one of the things that people think about is the peace theology that developed at that time as well, which also related to the breaking of church and state. I mean, they called it the rejection of the sword, which both meant individual, but also was about state coercive power, right? That the church ought not to coerce people um, into faith. And so, oh, and one other dynamic, which I think gets lost, which I think is really important about the Anabaptists in the 16th century is it's happening at the same time that the poor peasant rebellions are taking place. And so many of the concerns that they had actually shared in common with this poor peasant rebellion. So think about like movements, right, uh, from below happening. In some ways, the Anabaptist movement is taking part in that, though opting out of the violent response, right, uh, overall. In modern times, most people um, are more familiar, maybe depending on where you live, with Mennonites, Brethren in Christ, Church of the Brethren, Mennonite Brethren, and then now there's folks who consider themselves Neo-Anabaptists. And so there's all these different versions and hot debates and conversations around the meaning of the word Anabaptist. But yeah, so I got introduced to all of that. And at the heart of most Anabaptists, they would say, you know, this idea of taking Jesus seriously, right? How do we not distort, walk around, skirt the hard life and teachings of Jesus in terms of what it means for our own life, but be discipled after Jesus in that way. I say, don't make the cradle to the cross jump, right? Where we just we focus on baby Jesus. We love baby Jesus. And then Jesus died and everything in the middle seems to be optional, right? Like a buffet line, you just pick and choose what you want. So Anabaptists um, want to wrestle with what does it mean to take Jesus seriously in, in one's life and in, in, in his teachings over our life as well. Um, so anyway, I got introduced to that for the very first time. I did not come from any peace church tradition. So I was grappling with some stuff, but it was really fascinating. But I ended up becoming a youth pastor at Harrisburg Brethren in Christ Church, which was a multiracial Anabaptist congregation in the city, multiracial leadership um, in a majority black and brown community. It was the first time kind of getting to see that fleshed out after I had learned some about it in school. And then I ended up moving back to Philly and started seminary, but also was the assistant pastor, associate pastor at my home church growing up. And it was in that space coming back home that for the very first time, I actually started identifying as Anabaptist because I was out of it and I wanted to name in some ways, some of the ways that it formed me. Um, so now I often talk about myself as a hybrid, right? A black church and Anabaptist kind of hybrid that those two streams have been very significant, especially what I would say is the prophetic tradition of the black church and the radical discipleship wing of the Anabaptist movement, I would say, um, both of those are pretty significant for me. They help speak into the realities of white supremacy and Christendom and all that kind of stuff that we are confronting in our society today. Discipleship is one of those words that 
has been used in really negative ways, at, at least in modern church history, I would say. Many of us have experienced a really messed up version of that. But it's a big part of what you stand for, not just discipleship, but you go one step farther and call it radical discipleship. So just to make sure that we're all on the same page, do you mind defining what you mean when you say radical discipleship? Yeah, well, first of all, and and I use the word radical, and sometimes you can say I'm using it in two ways. One is the, the word itself, radical, means to go back to the root, right? And so what is the root of discipleship is in the person of Jesus, right? It's in the life and teachings of Jesus. And so I think one of the things, one of the failures in Western Christianity in general, and certainly Protestantism, and even more so in evangelicalism, is the way in which it skirts Jesus, right, and doesn't take Jesus seriously. And so again, um, Jesus' death is ultimate for people, right? And there's this kind of emotional attachment to the name of Jesus, but the Jesus that is often being talked about seems to have nothing to do with the first century Palestinian Jew living under Roman occupation, right? Who who said he came to bring, you know, release to the captives and recovery of sight to blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, right? This justice liberating uh, Jesus uh, who challenged the authorities and the status quo, who confronted the evil powers prophetically and called them a den of robbers, right? That kind of going back to the root of that guy, um, I think is really important. And so for me, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the starting points for theological reflection, right? Not this abstract thing, not what we project onto Jesus where we make him look like uncle sam or something you know but that that we have to immerse ourselves in the story of jesus we're invited to make that story visible in our own lives so going back to the root but then radical in the sense of also what people also hear right extremists right i remember when dr king was accused of being extremist and he said well extremist isn't necessarily a bad thing it's what are you being extremist for he's an extremist for love extremist for justice right um and i would say in that same kind of way i also mean that kind of radicalness that is willing to break with the status quo that doesn't necessarily need to align with what mainstream positions are. Because at any given point, what seems mainstream or common sense can be deeply problematic. What was common sense during slavery in terms of Christians' understanding was deeply problematic for most folks. And so so I'm willing to make a radical break from also the options that seem so common sense and taken for granted. Discipleship not meaning small groups, not meaning book studies or devotionals, not meaning you know, all the different things that usually people mean when they say they're doing discipleship. Not to say that those any of those individual things can't help to facilitate it, but discipleship itself is about this commitment to imitating, following, and transforming one's life after the image of the Son based on his birth, life, teachings, death, and resurrection, right, and his ultimate return. And so I think that for me, again, how do we make the story of Jesus visible in our lives? When I read about Dr. King, there's a way in which there's aspects of Jesus' life and teachings that are actually being made visible, not only through his words, but through his life. And I think that that's the kind of lives that Christians are all called to bear witness to. In one way or the other, it's expected that we are going to be um, brought into following, imitating, but then ultimately transformed by the life of Jesus. That's why in my first book, and I think I use it a little bit in the second one, I'll use the term Jesus-shaped. How do we get back that imagination 
that there's actually an ethical way of life that's expected for Christians, that this is basic to what it means to be a Christian, that one shares one's resources, that speaks the truth, that stands up for justice, right? That one risks oneself and will accept the consequences of faithfully resisting evil and overcoming evil with good. Like, these are basic Christian teachings that are throughout the New Testament. And I think that something's off in the church when it comes to just the basics of what it means to be following Jesus, basic discipleship. We find fancy explanations to skirt the hard teachings of Jesus that actually invite us to live into the reign of God. And I think that that's some of the failures of the church's understanding of discipleship to begin with. Your book, Who Will Be a Witness, came out in 2020, which honestly, the timing of that couldn't have been any better for so many of us. What was the inspiration behind that book? I'm sure you didn't write it knowing what was going to happen the year it came out, but in some ways it almost felt prophetic that it would be launched the way it was when it was. Prior to this past little season we've been through, people had not been talking that much about like Christian nationalism, for example, right? Now it's everyone's, but I was already, I mean, that, that was something that I was, I talked significantly about and there's just so many things in there, right? I mean, there's a shallow conversation around white supremacy, but we don't fully understand the roots of it, right? So I kind of do some of that archaeology and genealogy of it in terms of the church's history and how that develops over time. But for me, what actually sparked it was, so I was doing stuff with churches across the the country around trouble i've seen my first book engaging congregations helping them understand white supremacy in our racialized society helping them think about how jesus invites us into a new way of life um, and inviting people into to do justice right as the culmination of that and one of the things that i found was i got great responses overall but i kept hearing not everywhere but multiple times i'd hear folks say all right this sounds great but we have no idea like what it even means to do justice like what are you telling us to just go vote like what, what do you actually want us to do what does that mean as a congregation to seek justice together and so that kind of was the the spark actually at first i was like all right, well, I can help people with that because I'm doing stuff on the ground. I can draw from my own lived experience and help them think about the different options available. But then, of course, I'm like, well, you know, I'm a theologian. Like, if, if it was just a matter of just giving people some, you know, social change techniques, you know, I could probably just offer them like five books to read and then let it be, you know. So I thought, you know, let me do something much more deeper than that. Let's wrestle with this question of the mangling of the way of Jesus, turning Jesus into a mascot for the status quo, right? Let's grapple with that. Let's grapple with the church and its history, both in terms of Christian supremacist practices, but also then how that morphed and gave birth to white supremacy in our society during the colonial era. Let's grapple with the issues of power dynamics and, and how we form and engage within the life of the church, right? Um, let's grapple with our economic reasoning, right? And how variant it is to what we see in the life and teachings of Jesus and the whole New Testament. In fact, you could say all of Hebrew scripture culminated in the person of Jesus is going in a very opposite direction than most economic reasoning for American Christians. And of course, end with, you know, the greatest challenge that is always before us, whether we want to hear it or not, which is the challenge of love, right? What does it mean to love one's neighbor and how does that relate to the work of justice that we're a part of as well? I was really disheartened. I was saddened. I would even go so far as to say that I was sickened by the response of many white Christians 
to the overt racism that happened in our country, specifically this last year. It was something that put a huge pit in my stomach. It was as if they felt like they had to protect themselves or justify themselves when my thought was that our only appropriate response would be to come to the side of those who are hurting. What would you have to say in response to that reality? This will be hard maybe for folks who are even outside of evangelical worlds, but Western Christianity as a whole is implicated in all of this. And if we can't acknowledge that, that's why I often say like it's a little bit unfair even for like mainline Christians to put all the pointing towards evangelicals as if the 20th century didn't happen, as if white mainliners weren't at the forefront of white supremacy during that time as well. But there's no question at the same time that these problems are the most deeply embedded in evangelical theology and practice in congregational life in America today, right? At this moment, it's most demonstrably expressed in those contexts, movements, and spaces. And so, yeah, I think that it's something that has to be taken very, very seriously. I mean, the backlash is to be expected. I expect it. I'm actually often surprised that I don't get it as much as I'm expecting it because I expect it, right? Because people's identity are actually literally formed within this kind of Christian nationalist, white supremacist identities. They won't say that explicitly, but when you talk about America and you just name facts. America was originated out of indigenous genocide and forcible removal from their sacred lands, right? Slavery formally for 250 years and extended for another 100 years informally, right? You just start talking about facts and people take it personally because their identities are bound up in this. The story of American exceptionalism has been the story that they've lived out of. It's the story that makes sense. It's the story that they interpret their world through. And it's the power that that story has claimed their lives, holds them dearly and tightly instead of the gospel story. That story is more driving their social imagination for everything that's going around. So of course, I mean, in some ways, every now and then when I have to remind myself of that, I'm like, of course people are taking it very personally because it grounds and explains and justifies their way of life. And those two stories, just telling basic history of how our nation came to be, like you can't accept that and American exceptionalism. They don't coexist. American exceptionalism as a narrative was designed to smother the actual lived experiences and disproportionate suffering of actual people on the ground and to erase that from our minds and our awareness with this grand narrative of triumph and exceptionalism. And so I think that those two things, they're inevitably in conflict with another and one has to be converted from one to the other. You can't accept the full implications of the Jesus story and also remain stuck in American exceptionalism fully. People try to do tidbits and little bits and that, but at the end of the day, if American exceptionalism remains, right, as the dominant narrative that one is living out of, it's always going to be prioritized and be ultimate over that of the reign of Jesus Christ. White people love to tell stories about their grandparents worked hard and this and that, came with a nickel and all that. I hear the stories all the time, right? I'm like, all right, look, I don't doubt that your grandparents worked hard, but your grandparents also were born during the progressive era where there were government policies being put in place to benefit white people and give government handouts. 
at the exact same time that black people are both being excluded from participation in that and being targeted with discrimination and oppression. And so these narratives that we live by, we've got to examine, um, but it's hard because it's personal. What does it mean to say we live in a white supremacist society and Christianity is deeply white supremacist? When you think about your own congregation and the people that loved you and gave you hugs and care for you and birthday gifts and showed up to your little league game or something, you know what I mean? Like this is intimate all of a sudden. This is not just abstract ideology. This is talking about one's community and people are multidimensional and complex. So people are thinking about, well, this person was kind to me and loving to me and all this stuff, but we, we can't hold the tension that it's not just a matter of good versus bad. People can be intimate in those kind of ways and also be sustaining white supremacists systems and structures, right? I think that's the challenge for us to to grapple with those things. So much to think about there with what you just said. Our American Christianity, our Western Christianity has really become this thing where we go through our week and then every Sunday we come to church, we do the deal, we shake hands, have some donuts, and then we go back to just living our life. But you, in your book, Who Will Be a Witness, you really challenge us to go way beyond that and to be living out our faith each and every day. Do you mind expanding upon that a little bit? At the heart of it is the example that we have in Jesus has nothing to do with what we could say is modern religious orientations in our present society, which has like this kind of privatized faith, just me and God, right? Now it's something to be lived out. It has ultimate claim over your entire life. And it's explicitly clear that throughout the biblical story and culminating in Jesus is deeply concerned with justice, is deeply concerned with how we organize our society and its impact on those who are most vulnerable, right? Has deep impact towards those that are considered the least last and lost of society, the the Samaritans, vulnerable women, the poor, right? Those who've been excluded and and stigmatized in society. This is the gospel. This is the reign of God uh, where the first are last and the last are first. It does not care about our little privatized, you know, Jesus in our hearts. It is inviting us to live this thing out in, in society. And so Jesus, he tells the Samaritan story and then he doesn't say, now treasure that in your heart. He says, go and do likewise right? You go out into society and you do likewise. It has implications for how we relate to others in our world and how people are treated. The the gospel has so much to say about our economic realities and how we use wealth and who has access and who doesn't and stop hoarding and being greedy and all these. It's deeply embedded into all of that. And, And so, yeah, I think that it's fascinating the way that so many Christians just completely... In fact, I would actually go ahead and say that they're formed in such ways that many Christians are actually oblivious to the fact that the biblical text is permeated with the call to do justice, to let justice roll down like waters and righteousness mm-hmm. like ever-flowing streams. Like that aspect, you know, Micah 6.8 is not, it, they know John 3.16, which I think is heard wrong, right? God so hated the world that he killed his son, right? So like that's how people hear it. But, but I think that this idea that what does God require you to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God, right? Jesus echoes the same thing. He He's messing with the religious leaders. You tithe mint, dill, and cumin, he says, right? He's like busting on them now. The windowsill plants, you tithe mint, dill, and cumin, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness, right? It's the prophets. He's, he's echoing the prophets. And so this commitment to justice and to do justice for those who are most vulnerable and to protect those who are, who are needy and defenseless, like that's the work of Christians. That's what we do. And we're invited into this big, broad vision of shalom that starts in the Hebrew tradition, right? This all 
all-encompassing vision for all of creation where there's harmony and justice and righteousness and peace and joy, all these things. Like that's the vision that's supposed to captivate us. That's, that's the knowledge that Jesus is talking about God's reign, God's kingdom. And so when we hear that, we're supposed to be invited to see and imagine what God desires for human flourishing, God's dream for us. Again, this is all-encompassing. This is not just about what happens in your heart, right? And so we've shrunk it, and we've domesticated it, and we've watered it down, and we spiritualized it, and did all kinds of stuff, every kind of fancy theological maneuver we could do to make the Bible, and especially Jesus, say something else other than what it's saying. And we can see that happening oh, through Christian history. You can see slowly these things happening and unfolding over time. And so now we get to the point where now it's just taken for granted, right? That um, Jesus doesn't care about these things, at least not if it's about poverty, right? Or racial oppression. But if it is about, you know, abortion, then of course it still matters and we've got to fight for these things, right? Very selective, obviously, but overall deeply privatized faith. And then it abdicates us from our call, our vocation to actually do justice in the world in real ways, in concrete ways, at the grassroots level because of actual people's disproportionate suffering. That should be the thing that we stay attentive to. How do you follow Jesus, the one who's always attentive to those who are suffering in his midst? How do we say we're following in the way of Jesus and then actually turn away from the suffering of others? What you've done to the least of these you've done to me is what Jesus said. And I think we've turned away from Jesus as we've turned away from those who suffer in our society and have been for centuries. For the listeners of this show who are going to run out and grab your book, Who Will Be a Witness, make sure you do that. Everybody listening, go on Amazon, go on Drew's website right now and get the book. But for the person who picks up your book, Drew, what is it that you hope to teach them or what is it that you hope for the reader to get out of it? For one, I want people to see this radical, nonviolent, revolutionary Jesus who stands in solidarity with those who are oppressed, this liberating Jesus. He's been turned into a mascot for the status quo, right? And so I think that we've got to um, liberate even our own understanding of who Jesus is, return back to the Jesus of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I think that if the church were actually to take Jesus seriously, I think we could be in a much better place. So that would be one thing. But then I do care deeply about our mangled witness, right? The church has distorted what it means to be the church and what it means to be followers in the public square. And so I want us to both um, challenge that, but then also to give constructive, liberative options for us to do that work. We should be out there doing the work. Um, and for those that have not been doing the work, they need to be doing the work by following those who are doing the work, right? Um, not trying to take over, not trying to be saviors to the world, but in following and participating and joining in in solidarity, uh, we can be actually concretely doing that work. And so I'm hoping that at the end of reading this book, congregations together, not just individuals, but congregations or groups of people, even if it's just small groups, that they would say, let's do some community organizing and join in with this work that's already happening because we got undocumented neighbors, right, who are who are afraid to leave their house because of ICE agents, right? Or, or because we know that this prison uh, system and the policing system is targeting these black youth in disproportionate ways and that we're not going to just sit there quietly and benefit from the system that helps us and harms them. A whole variety of different ways that people can engage, but I guess the imagination that a part of doing justice is actually working it out concretely 
at the grassroots level in our own neighborhoods and precisely in response to actual needs. It's time to get our hands dirty. It's time to get to work that we actually stand up for justice, stand up for truth, stand up for righteousness, um, and actually participate in God's liberation. That's part of the work. That's part of what it means to be followers of Jesus. And so I'm hoping that that will inspire people, but also equip them with some actual tools, right? I give a lot of social change strategies and draw from social science that actually help people think through some of this stuff in meaningful ways. And I'm hoping that that will be a benefit as well. Drew, lately I've been ending all of my podcasts with the same question to every guest, which is simply in lieu of what happened in the past 18 months, we'll call it, where are you seeing glimmers of hope in our society and in our world? I think the hope for me is what is embodied, right? The hope is embodied, it's lived. And so for me, it's me coming out and seeing my neighbors struggling for justice themselves and and working and building towards this new thing, right? It's me working, collaborating with other leaders in my city and us dreaming together about what God intends and desires for the flourishing of all of our our whole city. Um, that's hopeful. It's, it is not just wishful thinking, but it's actually something that catches us and we're, we live out and we embody for others and that we can be hope for others as well and not just talk about hope. And certainly, you know, I think that the idea that, I mean, going back to this idea of shalom, to be caught by the vision of God, by God's dream for us, and to use Jesus's language, to hunger and thirst for it, right? That the world would be set right. I think that that is my hope that has captivated me and that keeps me struggling and wrestling on behalf of others, that this world as we know it, the status quo is not what God intends and it's not, and, we, and it doesn't have to be like this, right? This is not the final word on things. Um, and so I want to join in and participate in God's liberating work in the world as we struggle for that new world that God's dreamed for us. Special thanks to Drew Hart for coming on the show this week. Make sure you keep track of him by going to his website at drewgihart.com. Hart is spelled H-A-R-T. Of course, check out his podcast, get his book. I'll put the links to all of that in the show notes of this podcast. But again, thanks again to Professor Drew Hart. Next week on the show, we have uh, just a, another special guest. His name is Guthrie Graves Fitzsimmons, and I'm not even going to give anything away. It was just such a cool interview, and you're not going to want to miss it. And then, guys, this is crazy. It kind of snuck up on me, but in two weeks, in two weeks from today, we'll be celebrating the two-year anniversary of Jesus Never Ran. Who would have thought? Of course, to support this podcast, make sure you subscribe to it. Give it a five-star rating and write a review. And until next time, keep walking.